Welcome into episode five. This is Rehab Part Two, and this is the actual rehab podcast. So my goal in this episode is to walk you through uh, the experience that I had out in Provo, Utah at a rehab facility called Cirque Lodge. Now, I briefly touched on this at the end of the last episode, but this was not a normal rehab facility. It was by all means a luxury rehab facility, or some might call it a celebrity rehab facility. And it was a really, really unique experience that I was fortunate um, to be able to have only because of this peculiar insurance loophole that I found. So I went to a rehab center that I by no means could actually afford, but I had to pay very little out of pocket to go to this facility, and it made for an incredibly unique experience. So I want to share this story with you for a couple reasons. You know, one, I would like to to have this story available to anybody who has ever considered going to rehab because when you're in addiction, it's not always so clear whether or not you have a problem or to what degree you do have a problem. I know there's a lot of a lot of muddy thinking that happens when someone is toying around with their relationship to a certain substance, especially when you're young and you don't have any any stability or a lot of experience with a certain substance. It's really hard to draw those lines and really determine whether or not you have a problem or if your relationship to substance A, B, or C is one that is sustainable or one that you can maintain. Is it healthy? How do you even know what's healthy and what's not? This is something that can take years to figure out. And for that reason, I think there's there's a lot of distinctions that are hard to make uh, when you're young and you're involving substances in your life. So if you're someone who has ever, I guess, considered that you may have a problem with a substance, if that thought has ever just floated in your mind even briefly, I think this this episode might offer a little bit of clarity for you. Now, it's funny because I, I truly don't know that many people who I would define um, as somebody who you know falls in that category of having like an active addiction. I really don't know that many people, though admittedly it becomes very easy to recognize those people post-rehab. I mean, you can... You can smell it a mile away when somebody has a problem with alcohol or any drug, really. It's very easy to discern that in someone, but I don't know a lot of those people. I know a few who I could, well, I'm definitely not going to name them on this podcast, but you know, I do know a few of those people, but not many. You know who I know a lot of is this second group of people, and this is really who this podcast is for. Anyone who finds themselves in a close proximity to someone who does have a problem. Because even if you don't personally know someone who is affected by addiction or struggling with their relationships to drugs and alcohol, even if you don't know that person directly, you know of someone who has been affected by someone in that position. And so for those people, if that's you, if you're someone who has a brother, sister, mom, dad, friend, cousin, anyone who you you know and you have this suspicion that they have a problem, or maybe it's not even a suspicion. Maybe it's obvious that they have a problem. This episode, I hope, will be most helpful for you because it will give you an insight as to what rehab actually looks like. You know, when it becomes so clear to the addict that something has to change here and their life has to go in another direction and they enter this phase of recovery or rehab or they at least take a swing at something like that, you know, there's a lot of unknowns there. There's unknowns for them because they've never done this before, but even their family and friends who might be supportive of you know, them going to rehab or entering recovery somehow, there's unknowns for everybody. Nobody's done this before, and so there's a lot of 
a lot of guesswork that goes in, and I'd like to take that away for you. So again, if you're someone who is actively struggling with addiction, or you're toying around with the idea that you might be struggling with addiction, or if you're someone who is related to or is close to someone who struggled with addiction, I think these two groups of people will find this podcast most beneficial. And if you're somebody like me, who's uh, maybe in recovery and just enjoys a good war story, then you'll probably like some of the stories that are in here because um, rehab is a fascinatingly savage place to live. It is a very wild environment and it produces some really cool stories. So I got a few of those to share with you. And, you know, of course, fair warning, this will be a heavy podcast in some respects because I'd like to close this out by sharing with you the stories of three individuals that I went to rehab with because you know my story from the last episode, relatively speaking, you know, what got me into rehab. But my story was unique, and you'll find that every person in rehab has a unique story. We're all individuals, and while there's a lot of strange commonalities between people that go to rehab or people that that are addicts, there's also like these supremely unique stories that they all have that really separate them, and you realize that some people have it a lot worse than you, some people have it a lot better. It's this whole weird spectrum, and so of all of the the people's stories, my friends' stories that I can remember from rehab, there were there were three men in particular that stuck out, and so I want to share their stories at the end. Um, but one of their stories, you know, I've told that story maybe 10 times. I haven't made it through that story without crying even once. It is that that difficult to tell, man. It's um, it's heavy. It's heavy. But we're not there yet. So let me pick up where we left off on our last, last podcast. Uh, and that is that I signed some papers and decided I was going out to Provo, Utah to attend Cirque Lodge. And just one thing before we hop in, reminder to call the hotline. You can call and leave a voicemail or send a text message. Um, you can ask anything you want, excluding like current political events. I'm not touching that sort of stuff, but I'm gonna be answering some questions in future podcasts, whether it's about uh, relationships or philosophy would probably be my preference, but anything you want, leave a voicemail, send a text message. Uh, that hotline number is on the screen or in the description of this video or the podcast if you're on iTunes. Um, I would love to hear from you guys and take some questions in future episodes. So living in Orlando, I had about two weeks where I didn't have a job. I had quit my job at Sam Ash. I remember walking in and talking to the, the GM, who's actually still a friend of mine. I walked in and I told him, hey man, I got an alcohol problem. I'm going to rehab and uh, putting in my my two weeks notice, and so my shifts got kind of cut down. I was really barely working, and and I was sort of in this celebrating phase, you know, <laughs> just like depressive celebration, I suppose, because I knew that this was going to be my last two weeks drinking. If all of this worked out, you know, I, I'm never going to drink again, I guess. So I was uh, I was going downtown, going to bars. Drinking a lot, drinking at home alone too, but you know, spending every last penny that I had on alcohol because uh, I was saying goodbye in a lot of respects, right? And so I'm completely broke. The day finally comes, I get on the plane and I fly out to Utah. And I land at the airport and I have $7 to my name. I mean, like $7.50 is what's in my checking account, and that's it. I was absolutely broke. I did not have a dollar to my name. Uh, well, I had $7, but I went and spent that last $7 at a bar in the airport. I got a shot of Jack Daniels, and I didn't have enough money to leave a tip. And I told the bartender uh, at this airport bar when I had landed in Utah, I said, this is, uh, this is my last drink probably ever, and I'm going to get picked up here by a guy from the, the rehab center. 
and I don't think I'm ever going to drink again. And I said, I'm so sorry. I wish I could tip you because this is a special drink for me. And she said, don't worry about it. She poured me a double. So I had a double of Jack Daniels, seven bucks, swiped my card. It went through down to, you know, 23 cents or whatever the fuck I had in my bank account. And, uh, Hit the shot, and I was drunk. I drank on the plane. I had drank before I even went to the airport in Orlando, so I was absolutely shit-faced. I got picked up uh, by a guy named Scott, and Scott was holding a sign that said Adam on it, and uh, we went and we got in the Hummer. Cirque Lodge has all Hummers. Of course they do. It's, you know, a little, little over the top. But it isn't like, it's in the mountains. So you actually do need a Hummer for some stuff. But uh, a little ridiculous. But yeah, pick me up in a Hummer. And um, so Scott starts telling me his story. I, I vaguely remember this drive. But um, he was a, a tweaker, uh, which is a, a meth head. And he had been sober for maybe 15 years or so. Clean for 15 years. And so it was kind of cool because you immediately get to relate to someone who's done this already. And and the Cirque Lodge and a lot of rehab centers are very intentional about who they place in what positions. So he was a great guy to um, to introduce me to this new community of people. And we had a long drive. I want to say it was forty five minutes or an hour. And he asked, you know, had you drank on uh, on the plane? Did you drink drink before you got here? I said, Yup, I'm hammered, absolutely. And I said, uh, or that's what it was. He asked me, he said, anything you want to stop and, and get before we, you know, go into this detox center? Because you don't go straight to rehab. You got to go to detox first. And I just jokingly said, uh, I said, a drink would be really nice. He said, okay. I thought he was kidding. And he wasn't kidding. He took me to, to a liquor store. But the rule was, you can't get liquor you can get anything but liquor. So you can get wine, you can get a beer, you can have your final drink, and I'll hang out with you here in this parking lot, and you can finish it. And obviously, he knew that I wasn't like completely obliterated, blacked out drunk. So I assume he had a little bit of discernment there. And I just thought that was so cool. Like, what a cool thing for him to do. That is a lot of trust that he was willing to give me right off the bat. Because I very much assumed he was breaking the rules. This cannot be standard protocol to give to give an addict their drug of choice on the way to detox. But he just kind of had this like, fuck it, you'll be all right. You know, that sort of attitude. It was very cool, man. I appreciated that a lot. And so I got this Jamaican beer, a tall boy Jamaican beer that was like 12% or something. It was about like the most, the highest percentage of alcohol that I could possibly get. And I slammed that fucking thing in this parking lot, looking out over some mountains. And that actually put me into like some blackout territory because I really don't, remember a ton after that, and so I remember he takes me to, um, I forget where this was, but it was a very large hospital, and and you basically go to the psychiatric ward, because detox is, it's a very sketchy environment, I mean, depending on what you're detoxing from, there can be a variety of different experiences, and you know, it's really the, the tweakers and the heroin addicts, sometimes the coke addicts, there can be a little bit of chaos, a little bit. There could be a lot of chaos that happens in the withdrawal process. So you are very much in, in a psych ward. And the papers that you sign, I mean, they can physically restrain you if you try to leave. That's what a detox is. If detox was easy, you wouldn't need to go to a hospital to do it. You could just do it at home. But it's very difficult, it's very challenging. It's challenging mentally, it's challenging physically and emotionally. Your body goes through a lot and there's an element of danger um, with alcohol and benzodiazepines specifically. Withdrawing from them can actually result in death. They're, they're 
two of the only substances where, where that can actually happen, Xanax and alcohol. So uh, there is somewhat of a physical danger as well. So he takes me to this um, to this hospital. We go to the basically the psych ward. I remember signing some papers, and then they started this intake interview. And that's where I kind of lose it. I don't remember what they asked me. I don't remember what... I don't remember anything really. I remember them taking my uh, or doing a breathalyzer and they were just like, well, you are super drunk. And they asked me a bunch of questions, but I don't remember what those questions were. And then they took me to some kind of room and I fell asleep. And that was kind of all I remember about landing in Utah and going to this detox place. And so my next memory, the, the first sober memory, was actually waking up in the middle of the night or being woken up in the middle of the night by this giant dude who was taking my blood. And this was not optional, right? <laughs> Nothing's optional in detox. You sign papers. They basically kind of own you. So I didn't have a choice. I just had to roll over, super tired, give him my arm, and uh, they took my blood they obviously want to see what all drugs are in your system, um, see if there's any abnormalities or anything that they need to be concerned about. And then I woke up in the morning, and they have um, they have meetings and little process groups, and you know, it, it's it, for the most part everybody's just killing time. You're killing time and allowing your body to rid itself of this, you know, whatever poison you've been putting in, putting in your body for a while. So that's really all that's happening at detox. It is kind of boring. You're allowed to smoke cigarettes, but those are like scheduled breaks where they kind of escort you down to this gated area. It's very prison-y in a weird way, but it kind of has to be because there are people who lose their fucking minds in detox. I watched people, well, I didn't really watch this specific one. I heard somebody in their room asking to be killed. I mean, literally screaming, kill me, kill me. That's a heroin withdrawal. That's what that looks like. Opiate withdrawal. It's what that looks like, you know? Now, with alcohol, it's interesting because all they do is give you Librium. Librium is like a it's like a zombie drug. It makes you feel really foggy, really tired, really sleepy, but they can taper you down and it prevents you from having seizures and potentially dying from your alcohol withdrawal. So that's what they gave me. My physical withdrawals were really not that bad. I had a little bit of anxiety and definitely a lot of trouble sleeping. But beyond that, um, my detox was totally fine. That's not the case for everybody. I saw a guy grab a bottle of hand sanitizer from behind the desk, one of the desks up at the front of this little ward that we were in, pump a bunch in his hand and try to eat it because it's got alcohol in it. You know, I mean, people lose their mind. They absolutely lose their mind there. And the facility in itself makes you realize how dark this gets because they do suicide checks all throughout the night. Even the doors to your room, it's like a stall door of a bathroom where you can see under the bottom and you can see over the top. So you kind of have privacy, but not really. The doors don't lock and, and they will. They come in with flashlights and they check on you like every hour or two. And they do that because people try and kill themselves in this place. This is where we are, you know. So it, it definitely begins to hit to hit home how serious this is. And, of course, in detox, you'll start to question, you know, do I belong here? Because I don't – I wasn't about to kill myself. That's not where I was. But they treat everybody the same there. And you realize that, uh, that this is a heavy environment that we're in. So 
You make friends in detox. Now, weirdly, I didn't go to detox with anybody that I ended up going to rehab with. Um, the detox, you know, that that ward of the hospital, they ultimately send people to wherever they, they want to go. Some people aren't even going to rehab. They just need a medical detox, and then they do, like, outpatient therapy or something like that. But, um, of course, also remember, not everybody has to go to detox. I did because I had a seizure, so Cirque, Cirque Lodge made that mandatory for me to go to detox. But not everybody does. So I was in detox for maybe six, seven days, and finally, you know, taking blood work every day and stuff, they finally uh, said that I was physically withdrawn completely from, uh, from alcohol, so I was cleared to go to rehab. So I get picked up from detox, I get taken to this rehab facility, and first of all, let me just explain the building that is Cirque Lodge. There's really two buildings, two main buildings. The bottom building is 110,000 square feet. It is like three high schools. It's that big. It is mind-blowingly big. Uh, it's three stories. There are anywhere from like 25 to 40 bedrooms per story. There's office wings. It's absolutely huge. 110,000 square feet. Uh, and then there's another another place that's called The Lodge, and the actual lodge is like two or three miles up a mountain. This is in this beautiful part of Utah. It's absolutely like, it's like if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, and you see something, and you take a picture, and you're like, what is this picture? Like, it just, there's nothing that can explain how like majestic and beautiful this part of the world is. And so the actual, um, the main Cirque building is sort of tucked at the bottom of a mountain, but if you go a few miles up a, near, a nearby mountain, that's where the actual lodge is. So the lodge in itself is like double or triple the price, and this is normally where the real celebrities will go because they need that amount of privacy up there. The, the lodge in itself holds like, I want to say 12 to 15 people, so it's still a big building, it's like a big house, but it's it's much, much more private and a lot more expensive. Where I went was the main Cirque building, and that holds, if I remember correctly, 44 people, which is still kind of hilarious because you don't need 110,000 square feet to hold 44 people, but there are a, a lot of staff that actually lives on the, on the, the property, and there's also like, they kind of function as a halfway house sometimes where there's transitional living. So you do, let's just say you went to the rehab center and then you graduated after three months, but you're not quite ready to go out into the real world. You could still live there and work there um, for six months or so where you do go out and you have a job, but you kind of come back and then you help around the facility, cooking and cleaning and things like that. And it's a very, very large staff. There were probably more staff members than people there, because you have to remember, this is like well over $1,000 a day per person. So they have enough money to hire all sorts of employees to do all sorts of wild shit. But one of the craziest things about this building that I didn't know until I went there is that this building was originally built by Donnie and Marie Osmond. It was built for the, I think it's called the Donnie and Marie Osmond Show back in the 70s. So that's what this facility was originally intended to be. It was a film and TV production studio and like one of the biggest of its kind. Now after the Donnie and Marie Osmond Show was canceled or taken off air for whatever reason, they converted this place into just a normal film studio, like a film production studio. So there were 
all sorts of crazy computer rooms and different rooms that had obviously been film sets. There was a full-blown recording studio in here just for audio. I mean, you could definitely tell that this, this was used to make super high-budget movies dating all the way back to the 70s. If you've ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, there's a scene where they go to this banquet and they're wearing the, the purple and the orange suits and they pop this bottle of like champagne or wine and the court goes flying and it kills the owl that's up on stage for like some charity event. That entire scene in that banquet hall, that was shot in the ropes course of Cirque Lodge or what, what was turned into the ropes course. So back in, I guess the early 90s when that movie was filmed, Cirque Lodge was not yet Cirque Lodge. It was still a film production studio. Um, and who knows how many movies or parts of movies were filmed in various places of that building. But I do know that the ropes course of Cirque Lodge uh, was actually that scene. So I haven't watched that movie in a long time, but um, it kind of gives you an idea of, of the sort of things that happened there. And when those movies were being filmed, variety of movies were filmed, there, all of the actors and the crew and the staff and everybody involved in the production of that movie would actually sleep in this building. That's why there were so many bedrooms, and that's why they had the recording studio and these different film production sets, things like that. Now, the amenities at this facility were were relatively absurd, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, there is an equestrian therapy center, so they have these, like, really elaborate high-end horse stalls. There's a ton of horses there. You get to go horseback riding and train with the horses, which I thought was a little bullshitty at first, but it's not. Horses are, they have this weird, weird ability to like tie into all of these metaphorical messages that an addict would need to hear. It's hard to explain. Maybe we'll touch on that a little bit later, but there's a lot of horse therapy that goes on there, equestrian therapy. Um, Cirque Lodge has its own helicopter, which I only got to ride in, I want to say twice, uh, but they do have their own helicopter, which is really actually very useful in Utah because there's a lot of cool mountains that you can go to and it takes you four hours to drive sideways back and forth up this mountain or you can hop on a helicopter and it's like eight minutes. So uh, a pretty cool thing that they have. Um, they also have a fleet of Hummers. The Hummer I got picked up in was just like one of seven Hummers. They had a ton of these giant H2s. So anywhere, anytime we go anywhere, we would either hop into like a um, like a Sprinter van or in a Hummer, and they would take us to Walgreens or CVS to buy your cigarettes and drinks, whatever things like that you needed. They also had an entire spa inside the rehab facility. Now that wasn't open 24/7. It wasn't like you could just go get a massage whenever you wanted, but you could schedule to have a massage once a week. Um, you could get your hair cut there if you wanted. They had a hairdresser that was there three days a week. Um, you could go sit in like a dry sauna with the rocks and everything. I mean, you know, it, it was cool to have those things available. I don't want to give you the impression that it was like all day, every day, you get to do whatever you want because rehab is extremely structured. And later in this podcast, I'm going to go through what a typical day in rehab actually looks like. Because even though all of these things are available, it's not like you can wake up every day and say, I want to go ride horses, take a helicopter ride, get a massage, and then eat a steak dinner. I mean, that's just not exactly how that works. Um, you really don't have as much freedom or control as you might imagine in rehab, nor are you ready to have that level of control. Because more than likely, if you found yourself here, you suck at designing a day right? You suck at, at determining how to spend your time most efficiently, what's productive, what's healthy. You're not good at making these decisions. That's why you're here. So they don't give you a lot of that freedom initially, and I don't think they should. 
So even though all of these cool things are available to you, um, they're, they're also not really available to you, at least not initially. So that's just something to keep in mind. I really don't want anybody to assume that because I went to a rehab like this, that it was some dramatically different experience that was just filled with luxurious activities. There was definitely some cool shit that happened, but um, it, it's pretty tightened down. So when you first get there, one of the things that they do is make you take a three-hour survey, I guess is what it would be. It's like a questionnaire, and it is extremely detailed. They want to know about all of your, um, I mean, your childhood, your your parental situation. They want to know about your siblings. They want to know about your relationships and your, your sexual life, your romantic life. Uh, they want to know about childhood traumas. They want to know your goals. They want to know your, your religious affiliations, your world philosophies. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. And you know, you're still in a fog. It's not like you're clear-headed because you've been sober for like seven days or something. I mean, this is the first day that you get there, you end up taking this, this test. And really what you're trying to do is just give them as much information as possible so they can get a head start. Because rehab is, it's really hard and fast. You're working hard, you're working fast, and they're trying to do as much for you as they can in a very short period of time. So there's a lot of unpacking that happens initially. And they're not shy about it. They want to know everything right off the bat. And so I said, fuck it. I'm here. Let's be vulnerable. I typed in, you know, in that survey, everything I could possibly think of. And uh, and then pretty shortly after, you get assigned to a counselor, one specific counselor who's going to be your main go-to therapist for the entire time that you're in rehab. Uh, my guy's name was Stacy. And Stacy was a cool-ass dude. He was awesome. He was... Uh, he was maybe, I want to say 45 or 50 years old. Uh, he was a dad, and he was a hippie. He was about as much of a hippie as you could get. Very open-minded, very laid back, very relaxed. And so a lot of the, the neurotic, chaotic behaviors that people bring with them into rehab, he's sort of the antidote to that. He was very calm, very reassuring, um, just a low-stress kind of guy. So that was a cool influence for me to have because I was personally coming with with a lot of a lot of chaos on my shoulders, you know, um, a lot of worry, a lot of neurotic thinking, negative emotions across the board, and so to have this. This peaceful presence was very, very nice. So that was that was Stacy. He was awesome. The way he would do counseling, uh, many times he would do a walk and talk. So he wouldn't want to go sit in an office. He had an office, but I, I only went there like two or three times. Most of the time, he would just come steal you from wherever you were, doing an activity or in a group or a meeting, and he would take you to like a river nearby, and we would just do a lap around this little river. He would find you know, he knew the area, but like an old bridge that would be over there. So we would walk out to this bridge and sit on the side of the bridge or skip rocks at a river. That was his style of counseling. And, and I liked that. I liked getting out and moving. A lot of times when I, when I talk and when my mind is moving, uh, my body needs to move with me. So you may have noticed from this podcast, I move my hands a lot when I talk. Italian could be a little bit of that. But uh, if I'm on the phone with somebody, even here at the house, I don't sit. I'm out in the yard pacing, pacing around, moving. So for me, that was really helpful to have someone who was like uh, into the the physical motion as we talk. Let's get everything moving. And so I have a lot of great memories of, of counseling sessions with him uh, just walking through the woods or skipping rocks at a river, you know, just just moving, moving. So Stacy was awesome and he made a big, a big impact on me in my time there. Now, another thing that happens at rehab that nobody will tell you about is that you get piss tested 
all the time. When you're first there, it's like three to five a day. They say it's random, but kind of, sort of. I mean, they they will just yank you all the time and just hand you a little cup. And uh, they have a, it's a strip test. And it basically has like 50 different strips on this test for every drug on the planet. I mean, they can tell if you had smoked like K2, which was like synthetic pot that was sold at um, gas stations back then. Uh, They can tell if you had had different psychedelics. I mean, all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't even think to test for. A 50 panel, that's what they called called the actual test. It was 50 different substances or compounds that they could test for. And this isn't a normal piss test. It's not just like they hand you a cup. No, they 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 will need to stare at your dick as the urine comes out of it. That is exactly how the, how that works. So yeah, you, you get used to that pretty quick and three to five times a day. And they tend to lighten up on the tests once you piss clean, but obviously that takes a while because you gotta tell them all the stuff that you had done uh, that, that is going to be in your system. And de- the detox, the hospital, they give them blood reports and stuff so they know exactly what's supposed to be in your system. So for me, it was alcohol, coke, pills or opiates, um, weed, and Xanax. I had had all of those in my system when I went to detox. So they were. I was still testing positive for all of that. I don't think Coke. Coke is like three or four days in your system. But I was testing positive for um, Xanax, opiates, and alcohol and weed for you know at least a couple weeks, right until this stuff starts to come out of your system. So I remember after about a month, I had my first clean piss test when they said, "Hey, congratulations, you have nothing left in your system." And I was like, "Whoa, that's been years. It's been a long time since I've had that." So that was cool. But yeah, a lot of piss tests. It's not optional, they do it all the time. And if you have any weird behaviors, they will double down on the testing because people sneak stuff into rehab. People did it while I was there. They would sneak out in the middle of the night and catch a cab to go to a gas station to buy beer and bring it back. Um, There were people who had mailed packages that it had weed in. You know, who the fuck mails weed to a person in rehab. I mean, that that actually happened though. So substances make their way into the building. It's very weird that that happens because I thought of this as like a sacred environment. Like why would you fucking do, just leave if you have to drink that bad. Come back later if you're not ready. But some people try to get away with that. So, uh, so yeah, very strict on testing and very strict on a lot of things too. You know, there's another weird thing that happens. When you take addicts who have had this outlet, I suppose, for all of their chaotic thoughts, their chaotic energy, and they've been able to to use this outlet of addiction or whatever substance it is, that's their coping mechanism, it's their outlet, you know, they put all of that energy into that thing, and then you take it away, and you can't expect them to behave normally. They have really fucked up behaviors because they don't know what to do with the burden of sobriety. So you find that people will become hypersexualized. That's a really, really big problem in rehab. People trying to hook up with each other because there are guys and girls there. Uh, there were maybe, yeah, like 25 guys and 20 girls, something like that. And, you know, it, it's weird because there were many times where people would like sneak away to go make out in a hallway or try and have sex in the horse stalls or some weird shit. Like this happened all the time. And so there were very strict rules about how guys and girls could actually interact. You could only be around each other in the presence of staff. You weren't allowed to share couches unless a staff member was in between you. Like, really, really strict. 
And I thought it was kind of ridiculous at first because I wasn't at all interested in like hooking up with somebody in rehab, but it was a real problem. And, and I quickly understood why they had to be so strict. And they try to lend you some credit in that everyone here is adults. Everyone was 18 or older. Uh, but at the same time, like, just as a general rule, you can't you can't fucking trust these people. These are like like freshly sober addicts. And so you're seeing these strange behaviors sort of emerge. And this was one of the themes that that I noticed right away. You know, you're dealing with people who are at their absolute rock bottom. Everyone here, with the exception of the staff, is at the lowest point of their life. So your expectations for how people are going to behave in this environment should be very low. There is a lot of drama in rehab. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of emotions coming out that people haven't allowed themselves to feel in sometimes decades. So there's a lot of ups and downs. It's a chaotic environment at times. And when it's not, when it stables out a little bit, you know, you really appreciate that because you know, it's only a matter of time until a new person comes in. You know, rehab people are constantly getting discharged or dropping out of the program, or they come in all the time. I mean, there's there's new people coming all the time. Old people are graduating and leaving all the time. You know, so sometimes on those days when new people would come in, you'd get this burst of chaos, right? People would just have screaming fits or total temper tantrums or hysterically crying over things. Because they're, they've just been rushed into this new world of sobriety, and that, that's extremely difficult for people. So there's a lot of drama. Everybody's at rock bottom here, and you learn to appreciate the people who have been there for a month, six weeks, two months, or longer, because you, you, you gain a sense of stability after that amount of time, and it becomes a lot easier to you know, be less chaotic. You are sort of the shoulder to lean on. When the new guy comes in, you could say, hey man, come on, it's all right. Like we got a little stability here, a little bit of a foundation because you remember what it was like just a month or so ago when you were terrified and uncomfortable and dealing with those initial, just the burden of sobriety. That's the phrase I use all the time. You know, so sobriety is is very, very difficult when you've been away from it for so long. Now, one thing that you were not, technically supposed to do in rehab that actually happens all the time is tell what they call war stories. So a war story is just a story about a time when you got really fucked up. And most of the time they're told in a in a positive light. And this was, you know, if you want to hear my war stories, listen to the last episode of this podcast, Rehab Part 1. You know, I've I've got a lot of war stories. Some are funnier than others. Some, some are absolutely hilarious. Some are really dark and scary. But they try to tell you in rehab to not tell those stories amongst yourselves, to save those stories for an appropriate environment, like a process group or a counseling session. But that absolutely never happens. I would say nine out of 10 people in rehab smoke cigarettes. And a lot of them start smoking when they come to rehab, which sucks, but you know, it's just really common. Everybody's clinging to cigarettes. It's the last fucking substance you're allowed to put in your body, cigarettes and coffee. So on coffee breaks and on smoke breaks, that was the only thing we talked about. If somebody would say, hey, I got a story. This one time we went here and we did this. And you know, it was really fascinating because not everybody shares your DOC. DOC is drug of choice. So as an alcoholic, it was really fascinating to hear stories from the tweakers. I mean, they have some wild ass stories. Meth will make you do some weird shit. So those were really fun stories to hear. Um, heroin addicts had very different stories. They were they were very deeply romantic about, about heroin. It was strange. And so people had all sorts of different stories. 
And we would trade them all the time. I mean, it was like trading playing cards or Pokemon cards or some shit. It was just everybody had a collection of stories, and it was it was really fun to pass those around. What what the rehab center doesn't want you to do is to glorify your addiction. And I understand where they're coming from, but I also think that relating to other people who have been in your position and laughing together about some of those stories, how ridiculous they are, as we're all now in sobriety and we can kind of talk about this, like, what in the fuck was I just doing? You know, I think it's important. I think it is an important part of rehab, and I think, in a certain sense, the facility in itself understands that that's going to happen. They just try to warn you, like, hey, don't go so far down that hole that, that, that you're that you're beginning to miss these stories and or that you tell them in such a positive light that you think you could go back and that it wasn't actually that bad. I think that's what they're a little concerned with, but it, it's fun, it's a fun part of rehab. And one thing that you learned there, this is one of the first lessons that I learned, is that when you're drinking or in the depths of addiction, your threshold for laughter becomes very low. And what I mean by that is that it's very easy for you to laugh when you're fucked up. Everything's kind of funny, right? I mean, you're you're in this, this chaotic daze, right? So if you get drunk, you're probably gonna laugh at some stuff. It just sort of happens. If you're doing coke all the time, yeah, you're gonna find some things funny. So your threshold for laughter is very low. But your capacity to feel the joy that laughter is supposed to invoke in you, that is diminished. So you laugh a lot in addiction, but it's not the same kind of laughter that you have when it's more organic and free of the influence of a substance. So in rehab, you know, you do laugh a lot less, I would say, because you're sober and sobriety is really boring at first. And so it takes a lot to make you laugh. But when you do laugh, your mind and I, I, I don't like this word, but like your spirit goes to a different level. There's a different depth of joy that you're able to experience with the clarity that sobriety brings. So you don't laugh as often, but when you do, you just fucking roll with laughter. It is a, it is a powerful experience because in a, in a way you realize that you haven't laughed in years. And I remember times like this. I remember sitting around with a bunch of guys in rehab or girls, whoever was there, and we're all just dying laughing. And then somebody would say, like, man, isn't this amazing? Like, isn't this unbelievable that we can just laugh like this? Because you don't realize that you haven't laughed. You forgot what it was like to truly laugh from your fucking gut. It feels so good. And you didn't even know you were missing it. You didn't know you were missing it because you had had these funny stories. You've giggled and had good times and partied and all of these things have happened. But you haven't really laughed. That joy has been muted for so long. And so you get introduced to that again in rehab and it's it's amazing. It's amazing. And you can see it happen to people. The first time that they like belly laugh, deep belly laugh, and they're just fucking crying laughing. And then you realize that this person hasn't been there in years. Man, that's really powerful, really powerful. Now, given that Cirque Lodge was a 12-step program, you're supposed to be working on your steps, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But very fitting to my personality, I was unable to even complete step one. I took... Um, a philosophical stance against step one in itself, which was effectively to admit that you were powerless over alcohol. And I didn't feel powerless over alcohol. I felt like I had a certain amount of control over my drinking that 
I was worried I was gonna be able to maintain this for a very long time and kind of keep my life together. To me, that was the antithesis of powerlessness. Powerlessness would mean it killed me. And you could debate this philosophical argument to the end of time, but it's just fitting in my personality to sort of try and pick apart the philosophy of each step. And really, I never got past step one. You know, the step work were actually these big packets, and you're supposed to write you know, uh, answers to these different questions. So there's like little short answers and essays and exercises. And as you complete them, um, a counselor basically checks off if that step is complete for you or not. But again, I I really refuse to even do the work of step one. It was just, it didn't sit well with me at all. And so this is why I'm so grateful that I had this counselor, Stacy, who was able to recognize that I was a little bit too individualistic um, to really do this program. But instead of forcing me to do it, which is what most of the staff would have wanted him to do, he gave me books, and he gave me two specific books. One was called Mindful Recovery, which was very, very helpful. Um, I haven't read that book in years, but I did read it in rehab, and it was great. It, It sort of explained that there were many approaches to entering sobriety, right? There were many paths that led away from addiction. One of them is a a program like AA, but it's not the only one. And so that was really cool to get that message when I'm in an AA program and basically unable to do it, or rather unwilling to do it. The other book he gave me was one called The Four Agreements. And I actually think I have this book down here. Yeah, it is by Don Miguel Ruiz, The Four Agreements. Show you that. It's uh, This is a fantastic, a fantastic book. The biggest takeaway that I had from this book, it's one of the rules, I don't know which one, um, but effectively, to never take anything personally, that if you take anything personally, it's your decision to do so, right? Anything anybody does to you, uh, you're presented with an option of whether or not you want to play the role of the victim. And this is something that addicts do all the time. They really, really enjoy victimhood. Everything is someone else's fault, someone else is to blame. Uh, The world is out to get them. And the rejection of responsibility is almost natural for somebody in addiction. And so to hear that whenever anybody does something to you, intentionally or unintentionally, it is your decision to take that personally, that resonated with me strongly. And I realized that I needed to have a higher level of personal responsibility if I wanted to move forward in sobriety. I needed to take ownership uh, to a degree that I had never taken ownership before when it came to my my addiction, my addictive personality, my, my, my addictive tendencies, uh, that I had to take ownership over those and not look externally for an explanation, that this is all on me and that's how it's supposed to be. I am no victim. So those two books really helped me a lot in sort of my... Uh, setting up my mental framework within rehab because I was kind of sort of doing these steps on the side. I was entertaining some of the ideas that they presented. One of the steps you have to call people and apologize for things that had happened that you had done, making amends, is the, the, the phraseology that they use. And I did I did do that. I remember calling some people. I called one of my exes in rehab and apologized for something really weird that I had done that was somehow related to alcohol. I don't remember what that was, but, but I did make amends with people. Um, and, and there were many parts of the step work within AA that I did lean into. Um, it was just, I did it kind of out of order and it, it just wasn't for me. Now there's a couple stories that I wanted to share before we move on to this like daily schedule of, of what rehab actually looks like. These are just stories that stuck out to me as I sort of recalled different things that happened. You know, one day they took the helicopter, they loaded up about six of us 
They took us to the top of a nearby mountain, very, very high, and they leave you there. They leave you there with no staff. It's just six fucking alcoholics or whoever was there, whatever their their drug was, Um, and they leave you there, and they leave you with a rock, like a big flat rock and a Sharpie. You don't have a phone. You don't have anything else with you. You couldn't even bring cigarettes on this trip, which was pretty strict for them because everybody smoked, but you're just up on a mountain, and they leave you there for three hours. And the main exercise is that you write something that you want to leave on that mountain. So it could be an emotion. It could be a relationship. um, it, It could be... Anything that you want to unburden, right? Anything that you want to just leave up there on this fucking mountain. And if I remember right, I think I just wrote alcohol. I just wrote alcohol because it was that simple for me. This is what I want to leave. This this particular drug, that's what I want to leave up here. And, you know, I didn't really like some of the metaphorical exercises for me. It was a little too indirect. But for some people, that was very powerful. But I can tell you what I got out of that exercise. It wasn't really writing on the rock and leaving that in a pile. And there's a big pile of rocks from all the people that have done this over the years. For me, what I took away from that exercise was how small you feel when you're alone on the top of a mountain. I mean, this is such a beautiful place in the world. It's so powerful just to be in a place that vast, isolated. You know, it's just... It makes you realize how big the world is and how little and insignificant you are. I imagine it's what it feels like to, to some degree, to like go to outer space and look down at the world and go, wow. You are the tiniest, most insignificant little thing in this planet, on this planet, in this universe, right? You're nothing. You're nothing. My problems are a joke compared to... This planet where we are makes you feel small and it humbles you in a way that addicts need to be humbled. Because sometimes addiction and different substances will magnify your problems and they feel disproportionately big when they're really not that big. They're not that big at all. You know, you problems always seem to feel big to to you. They feel overwhelming at times. It feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, but it's not. You are small, and sometimes you need to be humbled. And if there was one reason why I think you you should seek out a rehab that's in like a crazy location at the very least is because Earth itself, the planet itself, and just the geography that was this place, it does that to you. It humbles you in a in a way that that I didn't think would really matter. I didn't think it would be relevant that we were in the mountains. I just thought that would be cool. But it was a lot more than that, man. It uh, Being in such a vast geographical environment does something to you. And it just comes with its own its own fucking message in a weird way. So that was a really powerful experience for me, for sure. And you know, another thing that Cirque Lodge was very good at was giving you individualized attention. There is a lot of group therapy uh, and there's a lot of, of group activities that you do, but it's not all group oriented. They do understand that people are individuals and they have their own individual needs and requirements. And so I remember one time um, the owner of Cirque Lodge, his name was Dave. Dave was a big old 
big old burly man. He was a he was a strong guy. He used to be a drug runner, and he had some crazy stories. He used to work with the cartel. This was a wild dude. But he'd been sober for a very long time, and he was very wealthy. And this guy was a force, man. He was like a presence to be around, booming voice, very big individual. And I remember one time he just grabbed me towards the end of my time there, and, and he said, me and you were going horseback riding today. So I was like, Woof, all right, horseback ride with Dave. And uh, we took two horses up the side of this mountain, went deep into the woods. This was several hours, man. We, we were deep in the woods, crossing rivers, and he took me to a waterfall. And we sat in front of this waterfall, and that guy brought me miles deep in the woods to sit me down there and just tell me that he believed in me. And that was deeply moving for me because, you know, I haven't talked much about my dad in this podcast. I do have a dad. He's alive. We're not in contact at all. But, you know, I didn't grow up with a very strong male influence in my life. Um, him and I have always had had a variety of different issues, a lot of reasons that we're not in contact, haven't been for a very long time. Um, but to have a man that I respected and admired a lot, to give me that sort of individualized attention, to bring me hours into the woods on horseback with his horses, mind you, and just say, I believe in you. You can do this. And not addressing a group, it's not a vague sentiment, it's you. It's me and you right here. And to say that with confidence, to look into my eyes and say that, man, that was, that was really moving for me. And you encounter a lot of these very powerful people in rehab, people who are deeply passionate about this field, about this, this topic, this lifestyle of recovery and addiction psychology. And uh, that moment meant a lot to me. I'll always remember that. Dave was also an awesome storyteller, so he would uh, he had some epic stories that that he told me on that horseback ride. But you know, powerful, moving moments like that. If there was any true advantage of going to like a luxury rehab, it would be some experiences like that. Because it's not just that I get to ride a horse. You can go ride a horse for sixty-five bucks at a farm near where you live, right? It's not just that you get to ride a horse. You know, but it's that we're in this crazy environment with this um, this awesome person who has the time to dedicate to one individual person to take them to this remote location and to tell these powerful stories. I mean, that sort of stuff was so awesome. The helicopter ride, right? Like, like those kind of experiences, while very isolated and undoubtedly luxurious experiences, those were very, very powerful. That's not to take away from a rehab facility that cost a tenth of what a place like Cirque Lodge costs. Um, I just want to explain to you that there were some of these events that, that were deeply moving, and it, made, it made, uh, made it easy to justify why you would go to a place like this. So now I'd like to take you through what an actual day in rehab looks like, because I think it's, it's hard to imagine exactly what a day would look like in a rehab facility. I certainly didn't have any idea uh, what my days would look like, but the important thing to remember is that it is hyper-structured. You have very little freedom. If you do have some leisure time, it is scheduled, right? So let me just take you through what a, what a day in rehab actually looks like. Um, you would always wake up at a very specific time, and it's pretty early, like 7.30 a.m. Um, is when they would tell you to wake up. 
you'd have 30 minutes to go make your coffee in their their kitchen there, giant, luxurious, like, community kitchen. And you could go sneak your cigarette in. Breakfast started at 8. It was from 8 to 9. And they would encourage you to do your step work during breakfast, but most of the time you would just hang out with some friends, break off in little groups, you know, coffee, cigarettes, things like that. Um, Then you would typically go to the gym if you wanted to go to the gym. If you didn't want to go to the gym, you had to do some other kind of physical activity. It was mandatory. So there were groups that would, uh, if there were some older people in rehab, they would just go on a walk like around the facility or on the property. Some people would go on short hikes nearby. Um, But a main core group of guys and plenty of girls too, uh, we would hop in one of the Hummers and then go up to the Gold's Gym there and work out there. So that was really cool. Another weird detail is that you get to eat really nice food and basically as much as you want. And when you don't have to pay for it and you're not fucked up on drugs and alcohol all the time, you get hungry. You get real hungry. And so I was literally powerlifting and eating like steak and rice all the time. So I got huge in rehab, not fat huge. Um, I left there and I weighed 188 pounds. I weigh 150 on the nose right now. So imagine me with basically 40 pounds of muscle on me. I was big. I was really, really big uh, when I left. Not jacked, but just like rounded out and barely because of the amount of weightlifting um, and food that I was eating. So I got really big. So yeah, you go breakfast, then you go to the gym or do some sort of physical activity. And then you around between 10.30 and 11 a.m., you would start a process group. So a process group is group therapy. And group therapy can go a lot of different directions. Sometimes it would be focused around one person. If one person had had a particularly uh, rough day or the night before was really rough for them or they had some issue that they wanted to focus on, you know, the whole group would kind of be around them and, and we would all sort of do a group therapy session around this person's issue. If there was a new person, it was really common that we would all sort of focus our attention in the process group on that person. Um, It just sort of depended what was happening. And it was kind of nice because on days when you were doing good and there was nothing for you to really bring to the group, you could just help somebody else. You could offer your insight or your opinion, or you could just sit back and kind of learn. Or if you had something that was truly bothering you that you wanted to bring up, you could get the feedback of, you know, 10 or 12 other grown men at the same time. So that's about how big the groups were, maybe 10 or 12 people at a time. But uh, group therapy, really, really helpful, really cool environment. And you did that every single day. Uh, It was about a 90 minute to like two hours every day. Then you would break for lunch. um, And by the end of lunch, maybe 1 p.m. or so, then you would go into your private counseling session. Um, Mine were normally around 1 p.m. So that was your It was maybe, I want to say four days a week, not every single day because your counselor doesn't work there seven days a week, but you know, you would go for like an hour or 90 minutes and have your private therapy session, which I just want to say about therapy in general, I'm a huge fan of therapy. You know, I'm not in counseling now, but I have been periodically throughout um, the last 10 years, even long out of rehab. And you know, I, I, the way that I perceive therapy and counseling is just like a personal trainer for your mind. You know, if you were to have let's say an hour to yourself to sit down and brainstorm about your life, running thought experiments, planning your future, trying to solve problems that you have emotionally or in your romantic relationships or in your job and your career path. You know, I think there's a strong argument to be made that that hour of that thought experiment, that planning, that brainstorming would probably be better if you had someone to help you do it. Someone who was trained in psychology, right? 
For me, what's analogous to this is like going to the gym. Like you can go to the gym and work on your body for an hour, but I don't know if there's a strong argument that you wouldn't have a better workout if you had an expert like a personal trainer, they're helping you do the workout. And so I see counseling in this way. It's not that I'm unable to solve my own problems. It's just that having someone assist me in these brainstorming sessions, in these problem-solving attempts, and having someone there to help me do that, it just seems to be more efficient because I'm sitting down with an expert who can sort of guide me, correct my thoughts a little bit, or offer some external influence, some other opinions from out, you know, from an outside perspective. So I think it's incredibly valuable. I don't think you have to be a fucked up person to get counseling. I, I don't believe that at all. I also don't think counseling is in any way an admission of your failures, right? It's merely admitting that you can do a better job at problem solving if you had some help. And if you can't admit that, it sounds like you got a bit of an ego problem, right? Um, now, with that said, you do need to make sure that you are compatible with your counselor. There are counselors whose personal style might not fit very well with you. That's definitely a thing. I've had counselors who just I didn't get along with very well. But when the fit is good and it makes sense, I think it's a super healthy thing to, to do in your life, right, at any point, even when things are going well, I think counseling is a pretty pretty healthy thing to experiment with. So if you've never been, if you've always had weird thoughts about counseling and, and um, psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, give it a shot, man, give it a shot. I, I think with the right person, when that match happens, it can be a beautiful thing. So after your private counseling session, then you would go into a group activity. Group activities at Cirque could be anything from uh, yoga to rock climbing. They had an indoor rock climbing area. They had a ropes course there, so you could do that sort of stuff. We went bowling several times, different group activities where they would you know, load everybody in the Hummers and go out and do something around town. They try to keep it somewhat normalized, so you are interacting with other people in the world. It's not soup. They try to not make it too much of a bubble sometimes, which which I did appreciate because you feel normal at a bowling alley, right? At least you can see other families and other people around. So it, they, they try to do that, and it was definitely helpful. You could go hiking all the time, and then horses. You could do that sort of stuff as well. There was a lot of cool, cool things that we did. Paintballing one time. Uh, a lot of people went golfing. There was a golf course nearby. So it was cool. There was always a group activity every single day. And it was just designed to keep you active, to get you out, to get you moving, to get you engaged, entertained, to involve you in some form of competition sometimes. Like all of these healthy behaviors that normal people are supposed to do all the time because they're fucking good for you. But as an addict, your only activity is just getting fucked up. That's the only thing that you're good at. So they try to introduce you to these new activities that require um, you to dig a little bit deeper, require you to develop some skill sets or work on your patience or your social skills or things like that. After the group activity, you would typically have an hour or two to yourself. A lot of people would read. You were allowed to take naps, so they didn't really encourage that. Um, in your first week or two, everybody goes and takes a nap because they're just exhausted from the burden of sobriety. But uh, yeah, so so that was really your only free time the whole day. It was like an hour or 90 minutes to yourself. And then, of course, some of us would just, you know, go on a walk and smoke cigarettes and make another cup of coffee or have a snack in the kitchen, things like that. But that was about your only scheduled free time for the entire day. Then you would go to dinner, and then we would always go to a night AA meeting. Sometimes the AA meetings were held at the facility. That was probably three nights a week or so. But a lot of the other times, they would bus all of us over to a local church or... I don't know, wherever they have AA meetings, all sorts of different places. There are actually houses that are like 
I guess owned by AA in and of itself. Like the whole place is like, like halfway houses will do AA meetings all the time, but there were places like that or just like little office buildings where they would have AA meetings and they would have five meetings a day. So we would go to the night meetings most of the time, but it was mandatory that you would go uh, to one AA meeting every single day. And some of those were helpful. Some of them were boring as shit and totally not worth your time. But it was cool because it wasn't just... It wasn't just Cirque Lodge people that were in these AA meetings. There were other rehab facilities that would come there. So that was really interesting to talk to other kids in rehab, but a different facility. And then you would also just meet like totally normal people who just lived in that part of town and were going to an AA meeting. So uh, there's a lot of interesting stories that you'll hear, a lot of interesting people that you'll meet at AA meetings. And it was intended to be relatively social because after the AA meeting itself, there's a lot of social time, hanging out, drinking coffee, telling war stories, things like that. So it was um, it was very cool. It, it sort of normalized the community that was recovering people, people in recovery from any type of addiction. And they also took us to different types of meetings. It wasn't just AA. They took us to gambling or gamblers or not, whatever it is, the, the one for people addicted to gambling. We went there, went to NA meetings, which is Narcotics Anonymous. We went to open AA meetings, which means you can bring friends and family members can come. And then we went to closed AA meetings where everybody here has to be actively in recovery, right? So different styles of meetings, they took us to all of those. It's a weird little community, but uh, yeah, went to meetings every single night. And then afterwards you would come back, normally we would do something like uh, play a game of volleyball, they had a gym there, we would do stuff like that. Um, or just have some sort of group game night, we would do things like that. And then you end with a a devotion, and I don't mean devotion isn't like Bible study, it wasn't like religious in any way, but just sort of like a closing message for the day. What did we learn today? What did we take away from today? Like another little miniature process group. And every day was a just a slight variation of this. The group activity would change, the subject of the process group would change, the topic in your private therapy would change. You know, but for the most part, this was every single day. From the moment you wake up till the moment you go to bed, it is scheduled. And I think this is a really important thing that happens in rehab because, again, you suck at designing a day. That's why you're here because you don't really know how to design or be the architect of your own day in a way that serves you, right? You end up wasting a shit ton of time in addiction just doing stupid stuff or you dedicate hours and hours, these giant chunks of time in your day just to getting fucked up as though that is an appropriate way to spend your time, right? So the structure is very necessary, it's very helpful, and it's one of the things that I think I valued a lot from rehab because even though I was a higher functioning addict than many of the people there, I still wasn't good at knowing how to spend my time appropriately. And so having these days, these schedules forced upon you where we're going to the gym, we're eating a healthy meal, then we're talking about our problems and then we're doing something in a group situation, then we get our social time and then, we, you know, having that structure laid out for you was just tremendously helpful and if, if you ever go to rehab, that is something that you can expect. And lean into that, lean into that schedule. It is, it is very good for somebody in that position. And now I'd like to share with you three stories from people that I went to rehab with. Just to illustrate the different things that bring people into rehab. Because, you know, I was very fortunate in that I chose to go to rehab. And that is definitely a theme that you will find is, is true uh, among people that are in these facilities. Is that 
when somebody decides to go to rehab, it is way better than if they are forced to be there. There were many people who were there as a result of like an intervention where they didn't want to be there. And man, they had a lot harder of a time leaning into this new structure, leaning into this program, leaning into their recovery. It was a lot more difficult for them because ultimately they didn't really choose to be here. But the people that chose to be in Cirque Lodge, man, we we universally seem to just have an easier time with this program because why would we have chosen to be here if we didn't want to do it, right? It was was a lot easier for us to lean into uh, the difficulty that, that was this program. So that's a big distinction. That's a big distinction for sure. But uh, one particular guy, I'm not going to say his name. He has a very specific name that, that some people may recognize. Only guy I've ever met with this name. But um, he was an Italian kid, and he went to the University of North Carolina. And he had only went there for his first year, and he dropped out. And he dropped out because he sold drugs. Mostly weed, but sold a little coke and a little pills, things like that. But he was, University of North Carolina, by the way, is a massive campus. I've been there before, partied there. It was, um, it's a huge, huge place. Tens of thousands of kids on campus. And this guy was just running shit there. Um, He told me, and I have no reason not to believe him, uh, that he was making half a million dollars a year in cash. So he was doing anywhere from 20 to 50 pounds a month in weed. I mean, just slinging dope. This this dude was loaded, and he was like 20 or 21. He had made a lot of money. And he had been on campus for several years, but he hadn't actually been attending school for several years. So I guess in this one particular time, he had driven out to California to buy a big batch of weed. He had 47 pounds of pot in the trunk of his car, and he got pulled over in Texas. Probably the worst place you can get pulled over with weed, aside from like South Georgia, which I had been pulled over with weed in the car in South Georgia. Story for another day. (laughs) So this kid gets pulled over with a whole bunch of weed in his car. And they search the car, they find it, he goes to jail. He's in jail in Texas for two weeks. Um, And then they finally let him out on bail, obviously. And he goes back to North Carolina, he has to tell his parents, he's in a huge amount of trouble. But he also has a lot of money, right? So his lawyer basically told him, hey, before you go get sentenced by a judge in Texas for the 47 pounds of narcotics that you were driving through their state, you need to go to rehab because if you can tell the judge that I've had a problem and I'm doing everything I can to fix it, it's going to give you a much better shot of getting a better sentence, right? It's in your favor to go to rehab. But the kid didn't have an addiction problem. He wasn't addicted to anything. I guess you can make the argument that he was addicted to selling drugs, but he didn't actually have a substance problem by any means. So he took his drug money and he paid his way into Cirque Lodge, right? It was like 70, 80 grand was was the bill for, you know, even a couple months. And so that's why he was there. So in a way, he was relatively apathetic about this whole thing because it's sort of like, look, I just need to show the judge some papers, that sort of thing. But even that guy, even that guy without an addiction problem, He did have plenty of emotional baggage. He had plenty of things that he needed to work on. And, you know, there's something that happens every six weeks in this rehab facility, and that was family week. Family week is when everybody's family is invited to come. They don't stay at the facility. They stay at nearby hotels. But it's like 
an entire week where your family members come in and they do these group therapy sessions with family and oh my God, do people have some fucking family problems? It is outrageous. It is outrageous the drama that is that week. And this kid, he had been separated from his twin sister at age three or four and he went to live with his dad and his sister went to live with his mom. And I don't remember what the explanation was of why the hell you would ever do that to twins. Very, very strange. But effectively, his dad had turned him against his mom and his sister, and his mom had turned his sister against him and his dad. So it was like this really weird dynamic because these two twins, this guy and his sister, you know, they had no reason to hate each other. They were they were split apart when they were, I, I want to say it was like four years old. So they really didn't even know each other that well. And they had these horrible stories about each other that turned out to not be true because his mom and his sister and his dad, they all came for family week. And I remember watching a brother and sister, fucking twins, who had hated each other their whole lives over nothing, over nothing. The parents didn't like each other. Of course, they had been through a messy divorce, and that's fine, that's fine. But this kid, you know, got like reunited with his twin sister in rehab, and I remember watching them just cry and hug each other in front of a group of, you know, 15 strangers. And man, that was so beautiful to see something like that happen. And this is a guy that did not have an addiction problem at all. He just had some, some really heavy emotional baggage and in a weird way, that had led into, or rather pointed him in the direction of some of these unhealthy behaviors. Because let's be honest, slinging half a million dollars worth of drugs every year on a college campus while you're lying to your parents about whether or not you're even enrolled in school, this isn't necessarily healthy behavior. This is high-risk behavior. It's rebellious in a lot of ways. Um, not that sustainable, as he found out when he got caught with 47 pounds of pot in his car in Texas. Um, and I, I imagine he did spend a couple years in jail after he got out of rehab. But, you know, it was just interesting to hear stories like that because everybody ends up in rehab for a different reason, and his was just fascinating. So I always remembered, I always remembered that guy. Um, and man, I hope he's doing well. I didn't keep in touch with him specifically, but he had a fascinating story, and it was powerful to be in close proximity to um, to somebody who had had such a such a crazy family story, and to watch them begin healing that right in front of me, man, that was really powerful. And so there's another guy whose story I want to share. Actually, two more here. So this is two of three. This guy's name was Eric. And Eric was a cool-ass guy, man. Him and I uh, him and I did stay in touch after rehab. I still have his contact information. I haven't talked to him in a couple years. But I don't think he would mind me mentioning his name here. He was pretty, pretty open about everything. And Eric was in a band that was pretty successful. But he actually came to rehab off of an intervention. His band and then his family and a lot of other friends made a video of all of these times with him either on stage with his band or just before and after shows in different party environments of these crazy things that he had done and how chaotic his behavior in his life was. And he was a happy guy. I mean, he wasn't like um, morbidly depressed or anything like that. He was a really happy, sort of a fun guy. But his behavior had become really sporadic, you know, and, and and chaotic in a lot of ways. And so his band and his family had made this video for him and they played it at this intervention that they had for him. And it uh, it got to him, you know, and he agreed to go to rehab. So it was sort of a hybrid of 
He did decide to be there, though not it wasn't initially his decision that he set into motion, but uh, he did want to go. And so he was there for most of the time that I was. We, we came right around the same time. And about six weeks, I think it's long, that's how long he was there. After six weeks, he left. And we all, you know, you wish him the best of luck, you know, hugs and everything. And, you know, you're so excited for them to go back out in the world. And, and he was back the next fucking day. The next day, he came back to rehab. And all of us had this, you know, first of all, this was like a strong-minded guy, strong personality, um, a big old tough dude. And we were just like, what What happened, dude? Like, what happened? 24 hours you were gone, what happened? And what had happened was he wanted to go to a show because he had missed the live music experience, which a lot of us can, can relate to here in 2021. But... He, uh, he wanted to go to a show to see this DJ that he was a fan of. And he goes to the show. He's in the front row. Well, the DJ recognized Eric from the band that he was in and said, hey, man, come on backstage with me. So Eric's like, oh, man, super cool. So Eric goes backstage. And this DJ, who was a famous DJ, said to Eric, he said, hey, man, do you want a drink? Eric said, no, I'm actually, I got out of rehab yesterday. And the DJ said, oh, man, I've been to rehab five times. That's that's a bunch of bullshit. Here you go. And Eric was not equipped to say no in that situation. He wasn't equipped at all. And he said, yep. And he drank. And then he got shit-faced. And then, boom, back at rehab the next day. And to me, that demonstrates the the vulnerability that people have, even coming right out of rehab, that there are certain situations that you are not going to be able to handle And I don't want to say that I had any close calls when I got out of rehab, like that I almost drank. I don't think that necessarily happened, but there are definitely environments that you should not be in when you're you're right out of rehab. Because rehab, as much as they try to normalize you and keep you plugged into society in some way, you are still very much in a bubble. It's one of the reasons that halfway houses are a good idea for some people. It's that they're not fully ready to be thrown back out into the world yet. The world is a dangerous place for somebody who doesn't have a lot of tools to deal with the the uh, scenarios that the world might present you. And Eric found himself in a very dangerous scenario that he wasn't prepared to handle. And so I always thought that story was fascinating because it, it demonstrates the vulnerability that an addict has even in sobriety, you know, it takes some time to build up some some armor for those situations, to gather the tools so that you're able to exist in the world without falling back into addiction, right? Because that's that's your comfort zone. So I want to get a lot more into this in episode three, which is much more about the long-term stability and some of my views on on my sobriety and how I how I look at that. But I just thought that was a fascinating story. So that was Eric, good, good dude. And ironically, he actually met a girl in rehab. They got married, and then they had two kids. So anyway, yeah, cool story there. Eric's an awesome guy. Eric, if you ever see this, shout out, brother. Sorry, I should have given you a call before doing this episode. But uh, I know him well enough to know I don't think he would care. So that's Eric's story. And this last story is going to be the hardest one to tell. It is also the most powerful story. Not even close, really. Of all the stories that I got from rehab, this is the heaviest hitter. This is a wild one. So there's a guy named Sean. Sean was in his late 30s, 38, 39 years old. 
He was a real estate agent, but he had got into real estate a little bit later in his life because he was actually a semi-professional soccer player um, all throughout his 20s. And if I'm not mistaken, it was some sort of injury or maybe just age in and of itself that prevented him from going any further in his soccer career. And so he went into real estate and they lived in Texas, him and his wife, and they had two kids that were age at the time, I want to say like six and eight. And Sean's DOC, drug of choice, was coke and alcohol. It was the combo. And his wife traveled for work. She was a flight attendant. And when she would travel for work, which was very often, he would binge at home. So he would drink heavily and then he would go, you know, get an eight ball, board himself up in the house and just be a weird loner, you know, drinking and doing blow by himself. And he would do this while his kids were there. And that was really at the core of the problem because the catalyst, the specific event that led him to rehab was he took his kids, uh, his son and his daughter, to a soccer game that one of those kids was involved in. And he was drunk at the game. I, I think he was doing blow at the game as well. And it was he was getting a little bit rowdy in the audience. And some of the other parents realized that he was fucked up at like noon on a Saturday or whenever you have kids' soccer tournaments. And, you know, they asked him to leave. And he said, well, I'm not leaving without my kids. So he pulled one of his kids out of the game. And keep in mind, whatever his behavior was at the time, you know, it was, it was over the top, over the top. It was obvious that he was fucked up. Um, so he pulls his kids out and he goes loads him up in the car, and there's a bunch of parents trying to stop him from driving because they knew that he was at the very least drunk, but probably also on blow. So, you know, he's, he's just being wild. They were trying to get him to not drive, but he won't listen. And he loads his kids up in the car, and he goes to pull out, and he fucking wrecks his car in the parking lot, slams it into a like a light pole in the parking lot in front of all of his kids' friends' parents who were there for the soccer game. So this is like his local community sees him acting erratically at a soccer game, loading his kids up in the car. He's super fucked up, and he wrecks his car in front of all of them. So they have to stop the game, and it's a whole thing, and the cops come. And, you know, this was, this was a, a traumatic situation for these kids and for him as well. You know, deeply embarrassing, deeply embarrassing, man. This is horrible. And so this caused him to go to rehab. Now, through his wife's insurance, she was a flight attendant. Uh, flight attendants for certain airlines are unionized. So in the same way that I had this crazy insurance that let me go to Cirque Lodge, um, that, that was his situation as well. So he was able to go to this rehab, even though he wasn't necessarily wealthy. But he goes to this rehab. And man, he's a genuine dude. He has no problem admitting that he's got a serious problem, that he wants help, that he feels horribly guilty. He's burdened with shame. Um, he wants better for his kids. He wants better for his wife. You know, he leaned into the program, man. He really, really leaned into it. And he was a good guy. And then family week happens, and his wife comes there. And we're in a process group that, for one reason or another, turns turns into like it's their process group. It's about him and his wife. And she was a really sweet woman, really, really nice. But you could tell that this woman had been through a lot with him, with this addiction. She had been through it, man. She had tolerated this bullshit for a long time. I mean, they had been married 10 or 15 years, right? And 
she was fucking done, man. She, I mean, she was not scared to let him know how big of a deal this was. And she made it abundantly clear that this is your last chance. There will never be another chance after this. This works or you don't see your kids again. And the deal that she made with him was that if he relapsed even once, one drink, one bump of Coke, if it's not complete sobriety from here forward, I am leaving you, I'm leaving the state, I'm taking your kids away from you. That's how much of a danger this guy was to his own children when he was in addiction, right? And I don't disagree. I mean, fuck, dude, you can't get you can't get shit faced at a kid's soccer game and wreck the car with them. You are a danger to your kids. If that's where your behavior is, you are a danger to your children. And so this wife fucking laid it down. I will not tolerate this ever again. Last chance, period. And it was powerful. And we're in a room with 15, 20 people. They're in the middle of the room, two chairs. We're all surrounding them. You know, it was uh, it was intense. And my mom was there as well, sitting next to me. It was family week, right? And uh, and then Stacy, who was my counselor, was also Sean's counselor. And Stacy had Sean. He had him get on get on one knee and propose to her to to restart their marriage. God, and every fucking person in that room was crying. Every single person. It was so powerful. Because he's admitting how much he fucked up. So much so that you got to make the promise all over again. I got to make a brand new promise. Fuck the first one. You got to throw that one away. I blew it. I blew it. I'll make you another one. A brand new one. The last one. And so that was, oh God, that was probably one of the most powerful moments in rehab, for sure, for sure. Watching that man ask him to marry her again. And he gets out of rehab. And he was sober for several months. And then he relapsed. And his wife kept her promise. She took his kids and she left. And he put a shotgun in his mouth in his garage and he killed himself. I don't consider myself to be a spiritual person. I lean a little bit more in the data, logistical, scientific direction. But addiction is a fucking demon. If there's evil in the world, how much further do you have to look? That man almost lost everything, and he got it back. And he couldn't keep it. He couldn't keep it. He didn't have it in him, you know? And he went from being in this beautiful situation of redemption, of forgiveness, of a fresh start. You get your family back. It's not over. You got it. You got it back. We're on the right track. You're sober. 
Your wife is with you. She stayed with you. You renewed your fucking vows. You can fix this with your kids. They're young. And he blew it. And he took his own life. And it's stories like that that keep my passion for this topic alive. Because if there's anything I can do with my knowledge and experience in this category, in this realm of addiction and recovery, if there's anything I can do here to help shit like this happen less, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because that story, you know, it hurts me. That was my fucking friend. I knew that guy. But just imagine the chaos, the devastation, the trauma that those children have to deal with. That his wife has to deal with. That his parents have to deal with. He had siblings. You know, the wave of destruction that addiction can cause. That a suicide can cause that was directly related to, you know, drug and alcohol abuse. Man, it's brutal. It's absolutely fucking brutal. And I'm interested in in doing whatever I can to make this kind of shit not happen. To keep people out of these situations, these environments. Or to give them some piece of advice, some sort of insight that can just lessen the evil that is addiction. It's a fucking demon, man. If there is one, that's one of them. Has to be. Has to be. It's that ugly. It's that vicious. And so I tell you these three stories of Sean and Eric and this other guy whose name is so specific I won't mention. But, you know, I I want to somewhat normalize the addict, I suppose. For someone who's outside of this world, I want you to understand that Addiction can touch people in a variety of different ways. It, it's not picky. It's not picky at all. And so in closing, you know, I really hope this episode was able to give you an insight as to what rehab is like the, to the types of people that you will see in rehab and that they're not all the same. They have really varied, really nuanced stories. I don't think my personal story was anything like a lot of the other people that were in rehab. You know, they all had these really unique stories and addiction is kind of peculiar in that way. While there are some some common threads between a lot of the people that you'll find in rehab, there's also these crazy differences. And I picked those three stories in particular preceding my personal story because I thought they they showed a lot of contrast um, within these people, within this community of people that are trying to fix their life, you know? And so I think we'll leave it at that for today. That was my rehab story. Now, there are dozens of other stories from rehab that I could have shared, but these were some of my favorites, some of the ones that I think will be the most insightful, and I think some of them are, are the most powerful. And, you know, I want to revisit this topic in the future, but at the same time, you know, this is not a podcast about addiction or recovery. Again, I don't identify as somebody in recovery actively. I'm just a guy who had a problem with alcohol that, that you know, in one way or another sort of solved it and found some stability, and, and I've got my own thoughts about that. And that's sort of what episode three in this series is going to be about. It's the last one where we're talking about addiction and addiction psychology. Um, and I want to share with you what I've learned 10 years later, it'll be 10 years since I've had a drink of alcohol this upcoming September. So, 
you know, almost a decade in, I've, I've learned a lot philosophically about my own psychology, about different um, amendments to my own behavior that I've had to make. There's a lot of things that I've learned and gathered about what it means to move past addiction, what life looks like after something like rehab. And so I wanna share a lot of that with you as well. Um, but again, this is not a podcast that is exclusively about, uh, about addiction and, and recovery. I, I perceive this as much more of a, of a philosophical podcast in that it's just about exploring ideas from an intellectual perspective and unpacking different shit that I find interesting, really. That's the only theme that I can discern from this podcast, but I'm excited to do episode three because I think regardless of, of whether or not you're somebody who has ever touched the world of addiction or struggled with those problems, I do think that there are many things in that podcast that could be applied to life in of itself. You don't have to have an addiction problem uh, to hear a positive message about finding stability in your life. And so that's what I hope to share in this uh, in this final episode. So yeah, I mean, I guess to close out, you know, I, I did um, I did a week in detox. I ended up doing, I wanna say like, it was maybe 10 weeks in rehab. I was supposed to do two months, stayed an extra couple weeks. Um, I got out and I flew straight back to Orlando and that's where we're gonna pick up next time. So thank you guys so much for watching. A reminder, you can call the hotline. The number is on the screen now or of course you can uh, read the description if you're listening on iTunes. Call the hotline, leave a voicemail or send a text message. I'm gonna be answering um, some of your questions in future episodes so make sure to do that. And of course, if you enjoy this podcast, please share it, text it to a friend if you don't feel comfortable sharing it publicly. I get it, we're talking about drugs and weird shit like that. So, uh, but yeah, text it to a friend. Let them know if you enjoy this. I would really appreciate the support. And I thank you guys so much for your time today. Adam here. This has been All In With Adam, episode five, rehab part two. I will see you guys in part three. Thanks guys, bye.